0: The protests that started after George Floyd's murder, they're still happening and showing no sign of letting up. On the 4th of July, demonstrators marched in Orlando, saying none of us are free until we're all free. Protesters in New Jersey took over some lanes of the Atlantic City Expressway to call out racism. In Washington, D.C., as fireworks erupted, Black Lives Matter protesters and Trump supporters faced each other down. But these protests aren't necessarily leading the news anymore. And over the last month, it feels like the nation's focus moved from COVID to Black Lives Matter and back again. Cases of coronavirus are on the rise, breaking records on a regular basis. According to the New York Times, in just the first five days of July, there was a quarter of a million new cases in the US. Hospital officials in cities like Houston are worried about not having enough capacity for the gravely sick. New York was supposed to be the worst of it, a cautionary tale, not the first of many. Some days it doesn't feel like there are enough hours in the day for all the worries we have as a nation. On a much smaller scale, it's even been a challenge for us here at Neon Hum to decide what to cover on the show. We don't want to lose sight of either pandemic, racism or COVID. Today on Telescope, we look back at the protests that changed one man's life and one unforgettable
1: day in the history of San Jose, California. I started to feel like we were being tortured or something for for what we were upset about.
0: From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. On Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, for the foreseeable future, we're gonna bring you stories of people who are far away, up close and how each of us are learning to live through this moment. Senior editor Catherine St. Louis has the story.
2: For the last four years, Derek Sanderlin has been teaching cops how to recognize bias. Their bias.
1: State-sanctioned violence that uh, is sort of... Um, weaved into our culture um, and our history. Um, And so when you put on your police uniform, you are putting on that historical context. You're putting on that culture, that cultural context. Um, That is the window through which people will see
2: you. That's not his day job. These days, Derek helps process applications for COVID-19 cash relief. But he volunteers with this group called Beloved Community. And that's how he started training police. The mission is personal for Derek. He's black.
1: Yeah, implicit bias training, specifically in the realm of policing, we're talking about the inherent racism.
2: Derek's a pastor's kid. He comes by his hope earnestly. In his sessions with San Jose Police Department, he would tell cops about this catchphrase he likes.
1: When you put on that uniform, you're also opening an account at the community bank of trust. You can make deposits or you can make withdrawals is literally how we put it. Whether they know it or not, they're making a choice.
2: The point is to get cops thinking about their actions. During the implicit bias training, Derek would tell both kinds of stories of deposits that cops made into the community bank of trust and withdrawals.
1: One of the stories that I particularly give is the time that a police officer came over to my neighbor's house and in the middle of arresting their son, you know, who had like violated his parole or something like that. They began questioning him. His sister said, you know, you don't have to answer any of their questions. Like, stop talking. And the other police officers said, you know, just started cussing at her and just eventually ended up threatening her and her family with deportation, um, even though he's a local city police officer. And when I heard that, I was, like, furious. I was just furious, even though somebody's being taken into custody for something that they did wrong. Um, It doesn't mean that, like, they— deserve to have a racist experience, honestly.
2: Just make the arrest. Don't add insult to injury.
1: Being told that your family could be deported if they don't stop talking, that's racist. That's something different.
2: Derek used to be a lot shyer about speaking up. He grew up in Victorville in Southern California, and he faced a lot of animosity.
1: I definitely was like one of the very few black kids in my area and felt like there was a lot of just the feeling of a need to survive and needing to assimilate in certain ways, needing to be silent in certain ways, while still recognizing at a very early age the very real effects of direct racism and indirect racism, systemic racism. So that's what I got into all this stuff for. It all came to a head eventually.
2: He moved to San Jose for one specific reason.
1: I came up here to see about a girl.
2: Kayla was the girl. Now she's his wife. They belong to the same church, and Kayla and Derek also work with families in impoverished neighborhoods to help get them what they need. They want kids someday. But for now, they've got a dog named Benji. In recent years, Derek and other members of Beloved Community have met with Police Chief Eddie Garcia more than a dozen times. So it sounds like San Jose was trying to make a genuine effort to curb police brutality. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. You tell me, because like you just shook your head like, girl.
1: (laughs) It's very complicated. My sense of the last several years is this is a police chief who is sort of battling the tension of, you know, sort of wanting to do the right thing growing up in a place like Eastside San Jose and wanting his community to trust him and like him and his police force. But then, you know, needing to maintain a particular reputation with his officers And having too deep of a relationship with with anyone um, who can sort of sway his decision-making, sort of at least that relationship in some sense. Or at least that's the fear.
2: There was a tension there. Chief Garcia couldn't get too close to community organizers without risking his credibility with his own officers. At least that's how Derek saw it. San Jose community organizers like him are fighting to give more power to independent police auditors. Right now, their role is really limited, and organizers are pushing for more robust investigations into police misconduct and the use of force.
1: You know, there were there are people in the police department who weren't comfortable with that. <laughs> Whenever an officer involved shooting happens, they're on a panel with with the police department in order to gain a sense of whether or not that force was necessary or needed.
2: Beloved Community hosted discussions so people could speak directly to cops.
1: You know, we would have literal dialogues with police and community members to talk about race, to talk about how we feel like we should be policed. And, um, you know, invited family members who had lost loved ones at the hands of police violence, um, police shootings. And they... We're bold. They told their stories.
2: Stories of violence, racism.
1: And the chief was not happy about that in particular. He felt like it was very uncollaborative.
2: Like Derek said, it's complicated.
1: San Jose is a pretty chill place. But when people sort of get less than chill... (laughs) it can be contentious. It can be contentious. So we've just had moments where, yeah, he's been pretty mad. And we've had moments where we're like, yeah, we're pretty mad at what happened.
2: It was May 29th, just a few days after George Floyd's death, when Derek decided to head out to a protest in San Jose. He felt driven to go, not just for George, but others too, Brianna Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey.
1: As those names just continued to stack, I was starting to just get furious and really, really sad. Because when I had heard about Mike Brown, you know, almost several years before, it broke my heart. And to be on those streets scared me and made me yeah. feel powerful, but I never wanted to be back there again.
2: He never wanted to be back there because he wanted the killing of black people to stop. But there was also something else about protesting that felt unsettling.
1: I never wanted to have to feel like I had to go back out to a public space and feel like I have to express that what's happening in the world is wrong. That, like, because
2: inherently that that's a scary thing for black people to do is to like put our bodies in harm's way to publicly say what we know privately, but that is difficult for many people to hear.
1: That's precisely right. That's precisely right.
2: So before heading out that day, Derek was nervous. He made sure to have his bases covered, in case things took a turn.
1: I think uh, my partner was like, I don't know why he's acting so extra, but I was like, well, you know, um, this this is a protest about, about police brutality. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make sure I wear long sleeves. I'm going to wear a mask. Uh, I'm going to wear, um, you know, Something to cover my head, because uh, I got long hair, and I don't want my hair to be pulled. I grabbed a, a gallon of milk, because I was like, I don't I don't know what's about to
2: happen. The milk was in case of tear gas or pepper spray. Protesters washed their eyes out with it. Derek and Kayla went to a protest in front of San Jose's City Hall. It was mid-afternoon.
1: Yeah, when we got there, it was this a huge crowd. Of, of people who, some I knew, some I didn't, and um, was just like, whoa, okay, let's, let's do this. They started chanting and started the march uh, down Santa Clara uh, towards the 101 freeway.
2: For an hour, hundreds of protesters took over the 101. Cars were at a standstill. It was largely peaceful and organized. Demonstrators would open up one lane to let cars through, but only every eight minutes.
1: And, uh, you know, sort of to, sim- you know, symbolize the eight minutes that the officer uh, had his knee on on um, George Floyd's neck. And, and, and then we'd close back up after a couple of minutes.
2: At one point, demonstrators spotted a guy in a car with Blue Lives Matter on it at a Black Lives Matter rally. I'm not entirely sure what
1: happened. I do know that there was a Blue Lives Matter license plate cover um, on, on this person's blue Mustang. But one of the people who were part of the protests uh, smash this dude's window in and I was like whoa, whoa, whoa and I think a lot of people were kind of freaked out and I honestly just didn't want it to get heightened um, I was yep. like mm, you know like it, it doesn't have to be like that today we can just cause this you know this disruption um, and let people kind of go about their way
2: Things were happening quickly. Derek didn't want things to escalate, so he intervened.
1: I looked over at him and, uh, you know, he was looking at me perplexed um, and was, like, getting out of his car. And I was like, yo, man, like, I don't look, man. I, you you got to go. <laughs> you got to get out of here. I know that this sucks, uh, but you got to go um like just give him that look like it it could seriously be worse um and so you know just trying to like calm people down so i just tried to get him out of there and and he listened um
2: good yeah
1: yeah so he good. eventually drove away
2: the protesters moved back toward city hall the crowd was about 300 400 people at this point but it was growing larger Demonstrators flooded onto Santa Clara Street.
1: They just started firing rubber bullets into the crowd, um, sort of as soon as they started doing that. And um, so there was there was an old woman who I was, like, standing next to who was, like, directly shot by the police um, with a rubber bullet and, like, got knocked over. And I was like, this is wild. Um, there's absolutely no way that she was a threat to anyone.
2: To be- it's what Derek had feared. He'd seen cops use rubber bullets before, back in 2014 when he protested after Mike Brown's killing. I'm not
1: unfamiliar. Um, and, but I had never really seen someone get shot um, and with a rubber bullet. And that definitely that definitely freaked me out a little bit.
2: A line of cops were facing demonstrators. Some were standing and shouting obscenities. Others knelt and held signs. No justice, no peace.
1: There are young folks who are getting really, really tense um, because because there are rubber bullets uh, being fired into the crowd.
2: Watching a video of this, it's hard to overstate how unthreatening the crowd looks. People are shouting at police, sure, but they're keeping their distance for the most part. And when police shoot the rubber bullets, it's often that people are just standing there. Sometimes they're even kneeling, with their hands over their heads. At one point, an older woman walks past the line of riot cops, burning what looks like sage. An announcement comes over the police megaphone every once in a while. This is an unlawful assembly, punctuated by another round of rubber bullets.
1: I started to feel like we were being tortured or something for for what we were upset about.
2: Derek didn't recognize the cops shooting. He couldn't see their faces through their riot gear. But he made one last-ditch attempt to sway them, hoping his words could break through the chaos.
1: Honestly, you know, as as things started to escalate, I I was just sort of like chanting out some of the like <laughs> lessons from from the procedural justice training like Com- what? community bank of dress i just kept saying community bank of dress what you put in you will get out honestly i just kept repeating that over and over again cuz i was just like yo do you guys see we're going to go home and we we live here <laughs> like we're going to wake up the next day remembering you and remembering
2: what you did It was futile. So he walked in front of demonstrators, using his body as a shield to ask police to stop shooting. I just couldn't watch it anymore.
1: So I had sort of walked over there trying not to seem threatening or anything like that, just put my hands up and and just kind of walked in between the police and the crowd and just kind of said, please don't do this, was trying to just get them to stop shooting the rubber bullets at people tried to just stay in their line of vision and just say like, please stop. And they told me to move and I was like, I can't do that.
2: For a moment, it seemed to be working. Police kind of backed off.
1: Then there was another cop who came up right behind them and was just pointed the rag gun right at me and said, um, you know, move and I shook my head and started slowly pulling my sign over my chest And he said, you know, you're not going to move. And I just kind of stood there shaking my head. And he, yeah, just fired his right gun. And I can't quite remember, but, uh, you know, it's clear to me now that, like, he was pointing at my groin. And I was shot directly in the groin. Derek. Yeah.
2: That's crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: What? What did the sign say that you were pressing to your chest?
1: Um, it said, "We are worthy of life." Um.
2: <laughs> so um.
1: sorry. No, that's okay. That's all right.
2: So in that moment, like, what were your immediate thoughts?
1: It was definitely like a slow motion moment. Um, there was like a few milliseconds where I was just questioning whether or not this was the most painful thing that I have ever experienced. And, um, was like, maybe I could just keep my hands up and keep walking. No, no, I, I can't. That's That really, really hurt. Um, sort of fell to the ground.
2: Friends helped him to his feet. Derek's partner, Kayla, was streets away. She had stepped away because the chaos had been too much for her.
1: Luckily, she called me. I just let her know that i have been shot, and she had to, like, come find me, <laughs> and she had to come back to the protest. Right as she got there, the cops started firing off, like, flashbang grenades and, and the tear gas.
2: Flashbang grenades are designed to stun and disorient people. But Derek's in so much pain, he can't even stand up.
1: So I'm, like, on the ground, can't even see, but can tell, like, you know, slash grenades. They're firing the tear gas now um, and, like, trying to get up. And, you know, I had been laying down because I couldn't stand and I couldn't lay. So I was trying to figure out how to, like, sit on something. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. A friend gave them a ride home, not to the hospital.
1: I've only been hit in the groin a few times in my life, and it's always been extremely painful. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's, it, it should be okay. Like, I just want to go home, like, put some ice on it and, like, try to sleep this off. Cause I, that's, that was just super scary.
2: Rubber bullets like the one that hit Derek aren't usually lethal, but they can cause permanent injuries Last month, a projectile fired by a cop in Minneapolis left a photojournalist blind in her left eye. In the 1960s, the British developed rubber bullets to use against rioters in Northern Ireland. They were supposed to be bounced off the ground to get crowds moving, not shot at people to incapacitate them. Back then, they were called baton rounds, but later the name was changed, so they seemed more harmless.
1: Unfortunately, depending on where you get hit, there's no real um, indicator of whether or not the damage will be permanent. You know, for me, I went into emergency surgery the day after, and they let me know that my testicle had been ruptured. And there was a possibility that I could not have children, or like having children would be complicated, is how they put it. As he was sort of laying out the news, I was like, wow, this is really serious. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, this could have serious ramifications for my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was terrified.
2: And he was by himself.
1: Because all this is happening during the coronavirus, this social distancing required at the emergency room she had to stay in the car in the parking lot.
2: So Kayla didn't find out till later that their dreams of parenthood might be on hold indefinitely.
1: Yeah, having to tell your partner that um, when, like, a couple weeks before, you're sort of, like, oh, things are good and maybe we can save up for, and, like, this time next year we can think about having kids. Um, you know, um... Yeah, it's it's uh, it's devastating. It's devastating.
2: Derek's 27 years old. After that first protest in San Jose, Police Chief Eddie Garcia defended his officers' actions and said the use of rubber bullets and tear gas was justified because the protest had been declared an unlawful assembly and because his cops had been under a sustained attack from the crowd. The primary goal of each force response in this context is to stop the violence and to disperse the crowd. It should be noted that large crowds are susceptible to agitation by small numbers of individuals who are trying to incite the entire crowd to become violent and thus overwhelm the vastly outnumbered police force. On Facebook, some civilians called for officers who were properly trained to defuse tense situations. One man said... Innocent people were only hurt because your police force was attacking them. Derek, in particular, got a lot of attention from the press. And he even got singled out by San Jose's mayor in a tweet. On June 6th, a week after the protest, the mayor, Sam Licardo tweeted, what happened to Derek Sanderlin was wrong. And then, just a few days later, something unforeseen happened. Chief Garcia issued a statement saying rubber bullets were hard to control and caused severe damage. And then he banned their use to break up crowds. San Jose officers can only use rubber bullets now if a person's assaulting them or someone else. They can't be used indiscriminately anymore.
1: Wow, like that was pretty fast. (laughs) But, um, you know, I think... As much as I, as much as I do appreciate the sentiment, I think as we've sort of been discussing here, like the problem just sort of goes far beyond that. They need to do different. Um, For me, the rubber bullet is a microcosm of a real one.
2: (laughs) People should be able to voice their anger in the streets. They should be able to march without being shot by rubber bullets. Ultimately, people were protesting because they're tired of Black people being unceremoniously killed, like George Floyd. They're also tired of police aggression towards them. Maybe not all problems need a cop to be called to the scene.
1: And we need to start reimagining what this this place looks like, what we do um, when there is a situation that doesn't necessarily need the police. What do we do in that situation? We need to start thinking a little deeper about that because too many people are getting hurt and too many people are
2: dying. Derek now has lawyers. He plans to sue the city alleging excessive force and that officers violated his First Amendment right to protest.
1: I honestly just really wanted to move the needle forward in whatever way I could. I did want to find a way to just keep people accountable I think if I had been shot anyplace else, um, also, I probably just would have gotten back out there and kept fighting for the right to just have
2: space. And now, his lawsuit is his way to fight.
1: It's not enough for a few cops um, to feel like they took something away from our one-hour seminar on implicit bias.
2: At the very least, he thinks cops need implicit bias training in their curriculum.
1: We need to start incorporating the things that we want them to learn into the training they already have.
2: In late June, the San Jose Police Department put four officers on leave after racist Facebook posts came to light. One comment on that private Facebook page said, black lives don't really matter. Recent events have folks in San Jose talking about getting rid of the police or reallocating some of their funding. As Derek sees it, abolishing the police or defunding them is a long game. But what about right now?
1: In the meantime, still going to have police, and uh, I think I think we have to. I think we have to even completely reimagine how they are how they are trained.
2: And Derek can't help but think of the Community Bank of Trust and how well. There are a lot of people who were shot and gassed during San Jose's first week of protests. They won't soon forget it.
1: What will it look like um, after all of this uh, when the cops have to take their riot gear off? Maybe physically that's possible, but like, what about mentally? What happens to those folks who interacted with community members? Does that change? How can we better that situation? Do we change the way that they interact with others? I think so.
0: Thanks to Derek Sanderlin for sharing his story.
1: Do you ever wonder
0: how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Before we leave you today, I just want to let you know, if you didn't already know, that Neon Hum does a lot more than just Telescope. We're producing a whole series of original shows that are coming out this fall. And we've recently partnered with a number of media organizations to produce shows like Motive for Murder with NBC and Dateline and Murder on the Towpath, which is available on Luminary and was produced with Film Nation and hosted by Soledad O'Brien. If you're interested in other projects that Neon Hum has under their belt, you can go to our website, neonhum.com, and sign up for our newsletter. You'll find interesting behind-the-scenes detail about the shows we do here on Telescope, but you'll also hear about all the other great shows that we have for you. So check us out, neonhum.com. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media – John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was reported by Catherine St. Louis. Carla Green was our producer. It was edited by Vikram Patel and me. Our engineer is Mark Bush. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear in this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. You can also join our Facebook group by searching for Telescope. If you like this show, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We want to stay connected with you during this unprecedented time in our history, so don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are open. If you have a story of life in isolation because of the coronavirus you wish to share with us, email us at pitches at neonhome.com. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. We'll see you on Friday.